Thank you for listening to Comics for Fun and Profit. This is episode 426 uh, for comics releasing. Hmm. I didn't check that. Let me take a quick gander over here at what, what, what we're coming out. Uh, December 20th. That's what we're going to be talking about later uh, during our sneak peek. Um, no, no Kyle tonight. He is uh, wrapping Christmas presents, uh, which, you know, at this time of year, kind of something you got to do. Um, but Eric uh, from Cowabunga Comics was so gracious that he hopped on and is uh, going to ably uh, take, take Kyle's spot. Welcome, Eric. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Uh, first up, um, I wanted to talk a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about Cowabunga. And uh, the cool thing for us was we got to be, we get to kind of play along like um, we have influence in the industry, a small bit of influence. And the Comics for Fun and Profit spec pick of the month each mm, month. That's right. Is th- This month has co- come into me from Black Mask. And because we've we've deigned that the, the spec pick of the month uh you and james and the good folks at cowabunga have said that's going to be deeply discounted as a featured pick of the month uh for anybody who uh adds a pull list through you yep and in addition to all the other great goodies and you can get into that in a second but one of the things that stuck out to me is you know you see bundles at some online retailers. There's some bundles, you know, DC bundles and um, kids bundles and things, Vertigo or sometimes a Valiant bundle or something, but they never really reach out to the speculator market. And you have. So you've put together a five comic, five number ones from the back half as a spec bundle. All You can get all five number ones, also deeply discounted, and all you have to do is be a pull list customer with Cowabunga, and uh, they can hook you up. Um, do you mind telling them a little bit about how to do so? Sure, yeah. So anyone who's interested in uh, opening a pull list with us, we're pretty much the same as an online any online discount folks like DCBS or you know my comic shop, Midtown Comics, any of those. We do the same things. You tell us what you want, and we uh, we order it for you and ship it out to you weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, whatever you want. Um, the best way to get a hold of us, you can either go on to our Facebook account, which is uh, facebook.com slash Incredicow, or you can shoot us an email at orders at cowbungacomics.com. And uh, basically what's going to happen is if you want something that we've got, if you want to look at uh, uh, any of these bundles, if you want to see kind of what our pricing is, that kind of stuff, I'm personally, I will be sending you an email that will have our monthly order form on it, and you'll be able to see what all those prices are. And uh, let me just say, we're competitive. We match, if not beat, in most cases. And, um, you know, some of the features that Drew talked about, we've got the Comics for Fun and Profit spec pick, which is going to be one back half uh, book per month that they decide might be a a sleeper hit that we're going to do a huge discount on, uh, better than anybody else. And then also uh, what we started this month and we're going to continue going forward with is kind of doing a back half spec bundle. So it'll be anywhere from five to maybe seven or eight, depending on how many back half titles come out um, that are going to be small press uh, spec options. So number ones, basically. And uh, I would just say keep an eye out because the ongoing issues after that may also get an extra discount if folks want to kind of stay with the titles, which is obviously the goal. But for December, the back half small press uh, spec bundle is going to be Wild's number one. Coming from Black Mask, Pumpkinhead number one from Dynamite, Battle Cats number one from Mad Cave, Shiver Bureau number one from Scout Comics, and Bloodborne number one from Titan Comics. So it's a good mix. It is it's a really good mix. Yeah, yeah, and we're we're pretty excited to do this kind of stuff. Uh, it helps get some names out there that are doing great comics that maybe a lot of people don't see because most shops, ours included, carry kind of the big three publishers. You know, DC, Marvel, and Image because those are the ones that are going to get picked up off the shelf the most. And uh, when you get to the back half and those smaller publishers, you just get less and less on the shelves just due to uh, reader awareness and things like that. So this is kind of a, a fun way for us to broaden that horizon a little bit more. Oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't even think of it that way, but that is great because so many, uh, I mean, you have to, uh, as a retailer, you've got to go where the money is. And so, you know, if you're going to choose, you got to choose some of the the big three books that are out and it's tougher to take a chance on something like wilds. Um, you know, you might bring, a, you know, you might bring one or two in 
I'll take a flyer, but you're not, you're not going to go deep because who knows who's going to pick that up off the shelf, right? Right. So, um, yeah, getting those subs up really makes it an easier decision for you guys, right? Yeah, and, and even some of the folks that are doing these books are relatively new or they've done, you know, small pockets in the industry where even James and myself haven't been able to read as deep into it as we could because obviously most people are coming in to buy the mainstream stuff, so we need to make sure we're relatively current on that. We can't get as deep as we'd like to. So some of these are folks that we even haven't heard of or we've heard of them but haven't been able to dig into their content, which means we're not going to be able to say one way or another if someone's coming and looking for something, whether, yeah, you should buy this or you shouldn't, um, which makes it hard on us to want to stretch and bring stuff in. And it's not it's not necessarily fair to, you know, those creators that are on smaller books and, and we acknowledge that, yeah. but at the same time we have a business to run first and that's, that's really the name of the game. So this is a way that, um, you know, we can offer folks a chance to get in at a really good price, a really good, um, view and see if they like it. And, you know, maybe we get out of the five that we have this month, maybe two or three people say, you know what, I'm going to stick with Pumpkinhead because I, you know, I was into it when I was younger when they kind of were running the the TV movie stuff, um, you know, or Shiver Bureau things like that. So it's kind of an opportunity for us to to just get stuff in front of people and and by way of that, when it comes in and we have to do the pull list, we may take thirty seconds to a minute, page through it quick, get a few of the main highlights, and just kind of see like, oh crap, this is something we could really do, or you know, maybe if there's a pocket, we can we can do something with it. Otherwise, we'll you know, we'll check the next one. So it's just uh, I think it's good all around for everyone. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, something that I I was, I was listening to your cowcast, the latest episode of your cowcast, and um, you're talking about a a customer who was who was very close to my heart because it it sadly it was it, it I recognized myself in him as the customer that walks in on Wednesday and asks, um, "Where's the where's where's the where's the black mask section where's the uh where's where's all your super small publishers and why don't you carry all these comics so that i can peruse them at my leisure and choose which one to pick up and i i used to do that all the time um kind of unaware or oblivious to the pre-order process and um um, it, it's, it's good to know that, you know, I'm, I'm not alone and there's a lot of dummies out there like me, but, uh, we get, we'll learn, right. We'll learn eventually that how, how valuable pre-orders are. Even the biggest retailers aren't going to have everything. I was just at Midtown Comics last week and they don't have everything from the back half. Um, and that's, it's just the, the nature of the beast right now. When you get a you know a 600-page catalog that has 2,400 items in it, there's no way that any reasonable shop can stock all of that. Uh, you know, Maybe an online-only retailer can have a better chance at hitting everything because, again, they're not counting on walk-in purchases. They're just counting on, hey, I have a pre-listed amount of orders. I just fill those orders and ship them out, maybe buy an extra percent or two for damages, things like that. Um, but when you're talking about things like you know, some of these really small publishers like Aardvark, um, you know, even Scout Comics, Black Mask, things like that. Most shops can't go deep into that because, like you said, it's the, it's the cash outlay. Um, and then the other thing, which I, we've talked about a little bit on the CowCast, uh, and, we, and we can't get into specific numbers because each store is a little different. But on average, your your big three publishers, as a, as a retailer, you're going to get roughly a 50% discount. Sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, depending on how much you're ordering. Uh, but when you get to those back half publishers, you're getting closer to a 35% discount, which makes it a slimmer margin, which means the money you outlay is a lot higher, which puts the risk a lot higher. Uh, most retail establishments want to shoot for that 50% margin or better because you got to be able to pay staff. You got to pay, you know, for the electricity and, and all of that kind of stuff. And then your other products that you're buying. So it really, really does, um, does get a little bit tight and it, and it makes it calculated for us. We have to think about either what creators we know that we can easily, uh, talk to other subscribers about. So Aftershock has done really good for us because a lot of the creators that they bring in are creators that we know, Garth Ennis, Phil Hester, Marguerite Bennett, um, you know, folks like that where we can very easily point current subscribers over to it. But some of the back half stuff that's even deeper in creators that most people don't know. So it just makes it a lot tougher for us to be able to do stuff. Yeah, all the more reason to uh, pre-order early, pre-order often. 
um, and get those things in. And um, um, if you need an LCS, I, I recommend Cowabunga, and uh, not just because Eric's here. <laughs> they're, they're good guys. Uh, Kyle is now joining us. Um, Hello. Got a lot of paper cuts from all the Christmas presents. Nah, I was able to dodge that bullet, thankfully. Oh, you, you ducked the merriment of Christmas wrapping um, t- for us? I believe I've simply postponed it. There is no getting out of Christmas. Yeah. Christmas cheer. Fantastic. Um, well, we got a... Uh, this is your good, good timing, because I needed your opinion on this, because I don't really know. Um, Aaron Churchill writes in and said he was he was looking through his pre-orders and saw Mr. Miracle number 1 as a director's cut 48 pages for 5.99 and he's curious about the collecting um, value increase on these director's cuts cuz they're 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 prevalent now there's a lot of them um, and they they come out more and more they're very cool they have a lot of back half stuff um, a lot of process junky stuff in the back and how you know script pages and and how the art was done and things like that um and he's also considering the vision director's cut as well and whether um you you think there's a long-term spec value on those uh myself we haven't seen anything i remember first seeing quite a bit of things with like star wars director's cut when that first series relaunched and everything and thinking oh these are cool they're gonna be under ordered they're really super fanny um and it turns out they do have a smaller print run uh they're very neat and cool they got a lot of the the pencils and a lot of the behind the scenes and anything but they've never moved the lead the needle as far as secondary market i haven't seen a single one of them really command anything yeah. uh they're really just fan service for the super fans and the people that want to see the, the essentially the process yeah um, but as far as collectability, they're they're not anything yet. Now, Eric, those those big oversized IDW um, editions that are like one hundred and fifty, two hundred dollars on your wall up there. Yeah. Um, you know, they usually pick like a, a uh, somebody really good, <laughs> and, and then they <laughs> highlight some of their their pages. And those things have collectability and and increase in value. So these are like these director's cuts are like mini versions of that. Why aren't why don't they have the same excitement and long term investment value? Sure. So yeah, the IDW stuff, even DC does it. Um, those artists and artifact editions, those are more collectible uh, because the print run, print run is even smaller than that of the director's cut floppies. The price tag is much higher. Uh, and then what you're getting out of those books is actual size uh, replications of the original art. And like you said, they, the names that they choose are significant for a reason. So uh, names like Jack Kirby, uh, Walt Simonson, things like that, where you have art art pages that would cost in the tens of thousands of dollars, sometimes even more for cover pages like... Uh, the Busema Silver Surfer number one. You know, there's things like that that are just iconic pages that there's obviously only one in the world of and would cost tens of thousands of dollars to have. So they make these uh, tabletop uh, editions that are hardcover, incredibly high-resolution scans from the original artwork. Um, they've done it with Michael Turner. Obviously, he's not putting out any more new uh, new artwork. Unfortunately, he passed away. So there's these these crucial and key artists that are out there right now Um are, are no longer with us, that the artwork is still out there. It's able to be found and scanned. That's why those are going up in value or at the very least retain their value. With things like Star Wars number one director's cut, we see those in dollar bins, um, $2 bins. There was a lot of them printed, and it was really more, more than anything, it was fan service. It was uh, a book that was created for the fans that wanted to see like what goes into creating a comic book. And that's honestly the way that James and I tend to treat those in the store. So we've got the vision, we've got star Wars. There was, um, uh, Vader had one. I want to say that all-star Batman or one of the Batmans had it. And what we do is if anyone's ever interested in wanting to become a creator, a writer, we direct them to those. And we say, you know what, if you want to get kind of an inside scoop on how the, the conversation happens between the, the, the writer and the artist, 
Um, this is where you're going to pick it up and you're going to see in each one it's a little different. Uh, Jason Aaron has gone on to say that, you know, for some of his stuff, like especially Southern Bastards, very little direction as far as the art goes because Latour just, they know each other so well that it just, it happens. Whereas um, Scott Snyder will tend to be a little bit more verbose in the, the direction that he wants certain art to be, unless he's going against Greg Capullo, in which he'll, which case he'll just say, okay, or whatever you want. Um, so each person is, is a little different. So those are more like teaching tools and learning tools and kind of that, um, like on a Blu-ray where you see kind of the director's commentary. That's really what that is. Whereas those artist editions are the full size reprints um, or the artifact editions. Those are the full size reprints of that. In most cases, hard to find art. Uh, we've got a couple of them on the shelf that are relatively recent, like ElfQuest, Red Sonia, things like that. Uh, even some of the some DC stuff that we have, like um, there's a Dark Knight one up there. We've got some Jim Lee artwork. Most cases, though, it's really rare artwork and hard to get, and it's highly sought after for any different reasons. You know, obviously the Vampirella crowd and the Red Sonia crowd are going to be different than the ElfQuest or the Usagi Ojimbo crowd, which is going to be different from the Kirby Simonson Busema crowd. I want all those. <laughs> I want all those. I, I don't know what I'd put where I'd put them. They're so beautiful. Those big, oversized things. They're just they're just amazing. And I'll never own the original art. So right, I get I get it. But but I, yeah, I'd love to have them all and and put them and just have them out on a coffee table. They could be a coffee table. They're so big. Yes. Um, but yeah, the the so I guess the answer there is um, so if you love the vision. And you want to see how the process happened between King and um, Walta, and you know how it went from pencils to inks and colors. There's there's a lot of value in that as far as reading and, and understanding that process. That's cool. If if you want to see the Mitch Jared's Mister Miracle connection, um, that's also cool. And and I think it's well worth the six bucks for forty eight pages. Um, don't do it trying to spec on it. Uh, I think that's what we're we're all in agreement that 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 there's no money to be made there. It's just fan. Uh, if you're a fan of that property, learn more about it and have and, and enjoy that process. Yeah, the way but, I look at it is more along the lines of like what Ed Brubaker does in his single issues, where there's there's back matter. Uh, Brian K. Vaughan does the same thing. Yep. There's there's you know more meat on the bones in the back half, and it's kind of just it's it's fan service. It's there for those that really dig into it and want more of the story or something like that, as opposed to a piece of of something that will make it more collectible. Yep. Thanks, Aaron, for the question. Uh, that was a good one. Um, we have uh, something from Chris Brooks from South Carolina. And, uh, boy, South Carolina sounds nice right now. Um, but he has uh, part of his uh, 12 Comics of Christmas, and he's he's sent his in to be a part of our of our lists. And he's his top 12, he's violated two rules all right off the bat. Uh, I would just like to point out that these rules were not provided in advance. Yeah, they're they're neither implied nor (laughs) physical. They're in my head, and I'll tell you when you violate them. Um, He he gave me 13 because there was a tie, (laughs) and he put them in no particular order. I'm okay with the no particular order. Violated. (laughs) Violation. But I'm going to read them anyway. Um, So it's Baby Teeth, Mm -hmm. Batman slash Mr. Miracle. Oh, got to pick. That that should be two. That should be two right there, because they're both by Tom King. He put them together. Um, you had forty six honorable mentions. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I think that's and that's allowable. I'll allow it. Um, Batman, Mister Miracle, Batman, White Knight, Dark Knight's mm-hmm. Metal, um, Eugenic, Crosswind, Flash, Spider Gwen, Reborn, Skyborn, Redlands. And revival as a posthumous selection because I don't think it was. Did it end this year? Or was it? It, it ended, ended this year. year. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm happy um, that uh, that he threw Eugenic on there. I've been a huge, huge fan of James Tinian's uh, trilogy of trilogies with Mimetic, Cognetic, and now Eugenic. So I, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Kyle likes James Tinian too. I do. Yeah. So the two of you can enjoy that stuff <laughs> <laughs> those are it's a pretty good list um uh, heavy on the recent uh bat books but that's cool and um pretty heavy on image stuff book. too which is pretty neat yeah that's the, we like to hear that I'm a, I'm a big fan um he he does ask for a favor uh also um 
his t- him and uh, Chris and his ten year old son have started a podcast of their own called Toys, Comics, Movies, etc. They have twelve episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes, and uh, would love a shout out. So that so um, if you want to hear a dad and a son doing a podcast together, which I think is super cool, um, check out Toys, Comics, Movies, etc. on SoundCloud or iTunes, and um, uh, give him give him a rating and a review as well because uh, we know how valuable that stuff is. Absolutely. So that's good stuff. Um, Today, while I was supposed to be working on a paper, instead I was on Twitter, floating around, and uh, Declan Shalvey was, he kind of did an angry tweet about um, Ed Brubaker's Killer Be Killed got optioned, um, and the the headlines uh, said something to the effect of Brubaker's Killer Be Killed optioned for this this. TV show or movie or whatever, and he took umbrage with the fact that it's a it's a Brubaker Phillips collaboration, um, and not just a Brubaker joint. So uh, Ron Garney, uh, another extraordinary artist, jumped on that and was um, also talking about the fact that artists get second shift; uh, they don't. They don't get the credit that they're due for the creative process, and um, and then yours truly uh, decided to to wade into the deep into the pool and try to stake a claim for writers. Um, with oh no, you made things worse, didn't you? <laughs> I was very no, I, I was very. You would have been proud of me, Kyle. I was very civil. Right. I was very civil and and nice, and I just said, well, you know, to me, and I and I might be in the minority, but. I, if a book is well written, uh, I'll read it for a long time, whether the art is subpar or not. If a book is poorly written, um, I'll jump off of it, even if it's got beautiful art. So it, it it's it's an uneven playing field. In addition, um, I I, it, I feel that the writer creates the world creates the characters, creates the plot, the story. And then, of course, it yes, it's a collaboration to get the sequential storytelling through the artist's vision on the page. And that's incredibly important. And, and when it works, it's wonderful. But it's not equal. Uh, I think writers get, should get more credit for that successful comic and when it's time to say let's make that into some other medium here's five dollars um they should get the lion's share of that or at least the majority share of that because it is their creative vision and thank you to the artists for making it great but you didn't come up with the idea where am i wrong everywhere <laughs> I'm okay. kidding. I'm kidding. That was a little too too over the top. Kyle, do you want to go first, and then I'll fill in. Um. Yeah. I, I mean, I understand what you're saying there. In as much as storytelling and writing and overall is exorbitantly important, and I can see where the, the 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 bias comes in. Where everybody, I'm reading one of the articles right now on the Killer Be Killed, and they they mentioned. Uh, it, they mentioned well, see, Sean Phillips draws the comic which is currently being published by Image Comics and then it goes on to a two paragraph set on Brubaker and his prolific authorship and all the different Winter Soldier and everything else he, he, he does for it but man art style leads so much even in that case to that book and just the way everything's conveyed that it's you know it'd be half the book you know think about uh, Saga you know, BKV is the big guy, and he gets all the credit for that. But we've seen the notes and the things that he sends uh, to Fiona and just says, I want an alien that's kind of like this. And she fleshes out, and she creates this entire world based on just a couple little things that she says, that she has so much ownership in every single one of those characters, in my opinion, even more so uh, than than BKV. And it, when you, uh, I remember watching documentaries about Bill Finger and stuff back in the original Batman days. That you know he was given a lot of license where, like, he, the Joker's more his creation, 
in my mind, just based on the things that he was getting and kind of how he fleshed some of those villains and some of those other things out in the beginning ones that, man, um, artists do get to slide so much, but they they do so much interpretation, they put so much on the page that, uh, yeah, you can't just give it all to the writer. No, I, I, I totally agree. All. I said majority share. Yeah, and I think that um, over time, things have changed a little bit to where the focus of creative talent is. Uh, I think when comics originated, you know, we've all heard about the Marvel method, right, where there would be a very, very, very loose plot line that would get handed over to the artist. The artist would draw out an entire issue and then hand it back, and then the words were put in, right? So that that has changed. DC is trying to bring that back. Um, but by and large... Um, I get where one side of the argument comes in that, you know, Drew, what you're saying, the the writer is the guy that's crafting the words that create the environment, that create the settings and the characters. But uh, Kyle nailed it on the head. A lot of times the artists are the ones that are doing the character creation as far as the looks and especially as far as the backgrounds, the settings and things like that. Um, you look in a lot of image books, especially, and you see character design for those first issues. And the character design is all coming from the artist, right? They're providing three or four different mind's eye views of the character and saying, this is what I think. And that's what's taken and gone with. Now, there's a there's a list of artists that I have that pretty much regardless of what book they're on, I'm going to get it because I love their art. Nicola Scott is one. George Perez, Ed McGinnis, Gary Brown, Fiona Staples, Pia Guerrera. Those are artists that, regardless of what they're on, at the very minimum, I'm checking it out. And oftentimes, I'll stay on the book, even if the words are crap, because okay. their art is just too good. Um, are you still reading Sirens? Oddly enough, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Well, you win. You well, win that one. I, can I, can I, I say this? It. I'm looking at Sirens. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, there's, you know, some of these creators, uh, there's just things that they do. Uh, so, for me, Nicholas Scott, just her art, whether it's Wonder Woman, Black Magic, um, and even before that in her earlier DC work, it's just so clean and crisp and unbelievable that I'm, I don't care what the words are. I want to look at it and I want to take it in. Um, Pia Guerrera, obviously another creator who works with Brian K. Vaughn, someone who he was able to just say, Hey, this is what I have and why the last man, this is the idea. And she took it and ran with it. Uh, and why the last man covers a lot of territory. It's not like Gotham where it's the same setting over and over again. He, he traver, you know, sorry, spoilers. Um, he traversed, you know, <laughs> York trans, uh, just traveled all around the world, basically, uh, especially the U.S., met all sorts of different people, all sorts of different settings, all sorts of different buildings, and she created all that out of her own mind's eye. Sure, she had somewhere to draw from, but um, right. at the same time, without her, uh, I don't know as if the story gets as much traction, and I don't know uh, if the ultimate rights that got sold to either become a TV show or a movie as it bounces back and forth would have happened as easily because she made it a reality. So, um, yeah. and then obviously you go back to the nineties and the image revolution. It was all artist driven, right? You had your, your Jim Lee's, you had your Todd McFarlane's. Um, so I think that, uh, there's definitely some truth. Uh, and obviously Declan Shelby is an artist and he's done some writing. Um, so he's going to come from that artist side of things and say, Hey, we get equal billing. We do, you know, just as much of the work. Um, so I, I agree with him. I, I think that the article, articles maybe could have played up the art a little bit more um but hey it, it, you know it's the way the industry is right now and then there's always the forgotten third wheel in this which is the colorist so betty brightweiser yes. um that woman is amazing uh, you know very much like Jordi belair people that can just do unbelievable things uh drew you and i were talking before we started recording about what your um what betty was able to do in velvet which is probably probably my favorite uh, Brubaker story right now and just the how much dark atmosphere there was but she was able to make so much happen with uh, you know with the colors coming off of the page so it, it's it's a tough world but ultimately you know the script writer in movies the director in movies uh, often gets the billing and the wow factor not so much the guy that's the lead animator or the you know the lead set designer yeah. yep um, here's where you're wrong um, where you're wrong is <laughs> um, why the last man it, it is it is this it is a story first and then we you, should probably give most of the credit to Shakespeare because isn't it based on Shakespearean? sure and and you could and you and you could add 
there there are ten artists, fifteen artists that could have helped tell that story besides Piagera, and it would have been just as successful, if not more successful. I I, I could I could read a comic that has stick figures in it that helps tell the storytelling. I, I don't need the fine art. If it's it's a it's about the story. And when somebody's if somebody's buying Kill or Be Killed, it's not because of the way Phillips rendered the protagonists or the demons' horns. It's because the story is interesting and the characters are interesting and the plot was cool and they can make money uh, because they can put it in another medium and it's really cool. It, it, it doesn't have to be, although Phillips works well with Brubaker, it could have been 20 other artists and it still would have sold. On the same token, though, you can you can point to things that Brubaker's written that aren't instant classics or aren't things that you go, oh my God, I have to see it. And some of that's because of the art. It's not so much the story. So right. I think that it's a. I think we can all agree that it's more of a fifty-fifty share than a one over the other. Yeah, that's where and that's where you're wrong again. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's definitely a fifty-fifty partnership. I can see that. The, I, I can see there's give and take, and they work well together. But when it comes time to say, optioned for movie, who gets the credit? for the vision that was purchased it's not a 50 50 split most of the time i will give you wiggle room that there are times where it is a definite collaboration especially in the creator-owned world um there's a definitely a collaboration that wouldn't happen one guy couldn't do it without the other person i'll i'll give you that it's but it's a small percentage for the most part it is that writer that gets the line should get the lion's share of the credit 60 40 something like that yes uh, i appreciate the artists and all they do but words are king and, and is this just writers getting uh getting their revenge for the uh the ability to resell original art and do sketching and make that extra side money yeah that this is how the uh, the writers of the world get their comeuppance exactly because artists do have that advantage you go to a con, and you go to a writer's table, and it, it's an empty table, and it's him at a table without usually not even like a tablecloth on it. <laughs> you know, it's really a sad and lonely. There's like a coffee ring sitting there. Sometimes they'll pull out script pages, and you'll be like, "Yeah, I don't really want a Xerox copy of a script page, man." And so. They don't have the same angles that an artist. You go to an artist table and it's just beautifully laid out. It's got original art and sketches and all kinds of wonderful things going on and lines usually. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, that's, there's there's something to that. Artists, you get that. You get you own the con world, and and writers get get credit when it comes times to see who who's actually responsible for it. Unless you're Fiona Staples and you only do digital and you have no physical stuff to sell other than prints, then you're just as good as a you know a creator that's doing only writing that has comp copies of trades and single issues to sell. Doesn't she do numbered? Like she yeah, do, she, she does. prints one out and consider, considers it the the one or something like that. The one original. Yeah, I, I thought she did. There was something she did so that she could have original art. And I can't remember what it was. But yeah, you're right. It's not really original art because it's not a board. Right. It's not a blue line. Yeah, so yeah, I wonder if it's not really legit, is it? I just don't pay her for it. She's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so where am I wrong? Where am I missing it? Well, I think, you know, where Kyle and I stand, and Kyle, I'm going to just say you're standing with me um yep, yep. is that uh you know without the visuals you you'd lose half of the story granted like to your point drew any one of 20 different artists could do it but at the same point it takes an artist to make it happen uh if yep. you just took the words that these uh writers were saying and put it out there on a blank sheet of paper i don't think that's you sell anything that's a short story <laughs> yeah it's not gonna be the same from, okay, here's what you're going to do. The next time you get a story, Drew, you're going to just read the word balloons and not look at the pictures and tell me if it makes any sense. 
Unless it's Brian Michael Bendis, you won't be able to make sense out of it. I don't, see, does he? I, I don't reduce me to saying <laughs> I don't care about art. I of course I do. Of course I love the. Comic I mean that's medium. what I heard. I love the comic medium because it blends yeah. writing and art. But we're talking about crediting a success. Um, credit where credit is due. The the idea is in Brubaker's head. And that's not always the case. If you listen to, on iFanboy, there was a Talksplode episode with Jason Aaron. And he talked about Southern Bastards and where it came from. And it was Aaron and Latour coming together to say, hey, we could tell this really cool story. It was a joint collaboration. And Latour has written some of those issues um, and, you know, had Aaron just do a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of cleanup or rough general. So it's not and really fair to say that, that it's always the writer. It, it can very often be both. There, there, are, uh, there are occasions, and, and I'm, I'm speaking majority, um, I, I doubt very much that King collaborates with the bevy of artists that come and go on Batman to write the story. I think those arcs are his creations and um, they, they do their take and they, they work through his, but they work through his vision. No pun intended. I mean, I just, Scott Snyder writes some amazing stuff, but if we don't get the visuals uh, from Capullo on, uh, Court of Owls. It's it's it could be just an awful awful storyline about some weird old people with masks on. Agreed. Scott Snyder's yeah. Well, I mean he's done stuff with 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 a bunch of different artists. Murphy. It didn't hit. It didn't hit like his him and Jock, his Capullo stuff. Which is really you know is 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 he and Jock's collaboration? Murphy and him on Wake. Um, you have to be all in on Jock to enjoy witches. You have to, you have to, you have to see more. You have to see more in line with the art style than you do the storyline for witches, because yeah. you, you know that's that's a huge part of what it is. Again, artists are great, great, and when artists and writers are on the same page, especially in their creator-owned work, where they have an agreement where they share the credit. Now, I bet you there's different contracts. And collaborations. I bet you all those co- those creator owned um, comics at Image aren't fifty fifty splits. Um, if you know if and if those are if those creators want to sh- want to shoot me a fax of copy. Wait, what? What's a fax? They want to shoot me a, a fax a a, a, pi- <laughs> a carrier pigeon. Send me <laughs> a copy of your contract to show me that it that it's fifty fifty. Okay, but I would bet you. I would bet you that while the artist owns a piece of it, I bet you it's not a fifty percent of it. And I might be wrong, but I I would guess that that's the case. I am not a creator, so I can't comment on that. Yeah, yeah. Next time you talk to some creators that have creator-owned work, we'll have to ask. You'll you'll talk to them before I will. Potentially, yes. <laughs> Yeah. Now I think after this podcast, uh, there'll be a lot of, of uh, artists contacting you. <laughs> that would be Drew at uh... <laughs> <laughs> Comics Fun Profit on Twitter. Hit me up. <laughs> hey, you know what? We got numbers, and these numbers are driven oh. by both the artist and the writer. <laughs> nice save. Yeah, we have uh, the top ten at least. We don't have the complete information but if you want to head over to comicron.com you can check out uh the initial release of of top tens and some cursory numbers and we can take a look um first and foremost we're we're down a little bit over um this november compared to last november we're down 13 percent in comics sold so um last year was a much better year at least in november and year to date we're down we're down about 8% in comics, about 12% in uh, trades. So uh, that's unfortunate. But uh, interesting, we've got a, we got a new leader in the clubhouse as far as the, the publisher that sold the most 
comics uh, in November, and it is DC. Nearly 40% uh, share um, of comics compared to Marvel's 34.5%. So they, they, I think that's the first time they've beat them in a while. Um, I know it's been close. Yeah, it's like week four of rebirth or month four of rebirth. I think. Yeah, it's it's been a while. They've 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 been close, but this is the first drubbing that I've that I've seen where DC's been the victor um, for for a little bit of a little bit of time. Um, Image still stays there at eight uh, percent. Sometimes they'll get nine. Occasionally they'll hit they'll they'll break ten, but yeah, they're right in that wheelhouse. Um, IDW at three point six. Dynamite at two percent. Uh, one and a half for Dark Horse, uh, over one and a half for Boom, and uh, the Titan. Titan got a percentage point, um, so everybody else was below below that. Hey, uh, and don't forget the, that Rick and Morty at the bottom. One point two percent for Oni. That, that's driven by, uh, yeah, that's driven by, by Rick and Morty. And one of many other not, things, but yeah, it's not it's not letter forty four anymore. I know that. <laughs> that's right. Um, so our top. 10 came out and uh, anything jump out at you when you look at that top 10 guys looks good to me I'm in um, that's, <laughs> that's a lot of, that's an awful lot of DC there yes eight eight of t- uh, eight of the top 10 are DC books with the top two being the same book doomsday clock um, yep and this is where a retailer perspective can back me up on. Those are two different items because they are two different price points and therefore two different SKUs. They are. They are two different SKUs. They are two different order line items. When we look at orders, uh, they are two different sales tactics. Let me tell you why you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think we found the title of this episode. So the, the, the title of this episode is book. why you're wrong? <laughs> it, it, that's the title of this episode. Let me tell you why you're wrong. It's, it's Doomsday Clock. Okay. It's Doomsday Clock. It's there's no difference between there being two Doomsday Clocks at the top and fifty of Venom with all the variant covers. No difference to me, just because there's a different skew. So uh, to that point, it is true. Every cover uh, has a different skew, uh, no matter what it is. So A covers are going to have a different skew line number. You've got the main. Uh, UPC and then those last you know four or five digits for an A cover it's going to be a one B cover is going to be a two C cover is going to be three etc. So I totally see where you're coming from on that front. I wish these lists would split all of that out because it would give a much better view into what the print runs for certain things are and that would actually help spec um, for speculators knowing you know oh there's actually you know only. 50 of this one in 100 as opposed to what could be you know, whatever there, there's no real distinct breakdown of that um but and when you're talking retailers too wouldn't retailers um, get value out of that no because by the time these numbers come out we've already done our our big push and gotten our stuff out um you know we, our our main push is the first two weeks really of when especially with variants when those books come out anything after that and you know we're still sitting with some of those, um, some variant books on the shelf that we can't really do much with that end up on our eBay store, things like that. So, so really, honestly, for me, it's um, I'd like to see that division, but when it's a different price point, it, it, it makes sense. What they're basically saying in their database system is everything that rolls up at four ninety nine goes under, you know, this line item on the monthly number report out. Everything that goes under five ninety nine rolls up under this one. So. Um, you know, from a from a database and reporting standpoint, it makes total sense. Uh, but like I said, you know, everything is it's a different sales tactic, right? So if you've got an open to order option of a lenticular cover or a glow in the dark cover at a dollar more than a regular cover, well, every smart retailer is going to say, "I know that this book may be hot, so why not order heavier on the one that costs more?" So if I sell out of the one that's a dollar less, people have to buy the one that's a dollar more. Right, so you're gonna have retailers that do that. You're gonna have some that are gonna make a split right down the middle. That are gonna say, "Hey, you know what? We want to be able to cater to either audience." Uh, and then you're gonna have retailers that say, "I don't have the cash outlay to be able to buy that lenticular cover, so I'm just gonna go straight with the main cover." Which is, yeah, I I assumed when ordering was done that lenticular would be more prevalent, but uh, it's not. Yeah, and it was independently orderable too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything. Yeah, everything with DC right now is independently orderable. Surprising. And honestly, you know, the actual the, the reaction in the store, um, and this was actually the same with Marvel Legacy was that 
nobody cared about the non-lenticular. Everybody wants that lenticular cover. They're happy to pay that extra dollar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And nice crisp corners, and usually, usually no damages. Um, you probably know yes. better than me. Um, so that yeah, Doomsday Clock takes the first two spots, and I thought it was a great read, and I'm super excited about it. Um, number three, that the Batman who laughs, um, kind of the breakout evil Batman from from the metal event. Um, Kyle, you went mm-hmm. in heavy on this thing. Oh, it's just such a cool character. Yeah. But now I have I have a, a lot of uh, remorse from some of the really cool variants that were out for that one and, and just the different things that that character has on different uh, different covers and different uh, 1-in-50s and such. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's an evil-looking dude. Um, Batman Lost, number one, which I don't remember which one that one was. That's not the underwater one, is it? Which one is Batman Lost? Is that part of Metal? It is, isn't it? Yep. It's part of it, yeah. It is, yeah. Uh, Then we have Batman 35, Batman 34 at 5 and 6. A lot of bats. Uh, Then at 7, Batman the Devastator, number 1. We finally have a Marvel appearance. Captain America 695, which is the, the... Is that the first Wade and Samney? Uh, of the legacy title, right? I I do believe so. Yeah, and then we have uh, the Batman Annual, lovely Batman Annual number two at at rank nine, and uh, Star Wars thirty eight makes a surprise appearance to me uh, in the in the tenth slot. So it, it's kind of it's I'm having a lot of trouble trying to figure out where uh, the one hundred k line is and what I think some of these sold because. Um, let's take Batman Annual Number One, for example, which came out last November. Uh, the previous annual, uh, ninety-one thousand for the one before that. Right. So they're usually similar in this one, but I think this one sold a little bit higher because of all the scuttlebutt uh, behind it. Also, uh, on the previous month, we had Batman Thirty-Two at hundred eight thousand and thirty-three, dipping under a hundred thousand at uh, ninety-seven. Yeah. I'm going to put the $100,000 line at the top six. So all the top six are over a hundred grand, But Batman Devastator and, then, and below, I believe, are under a hundred grand. And then Star Wars, if we look at the previous month for Star Wars, which I have now lost because I moved around too much. Star Wars 37 was only 65000 the previous month. Yeah. <coughs> so I might be, I might be off. What 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 is your what's your guess there, Eric? This is a tough one. Um, if you take what we did in our store and use that as kind of a barometer, then I would say, uh, man, I would say that Batman Annual Two is over a hundred thousand. We more than doubled our Batman Annual order, but mm-hmm. seeing it under Captain America six ninety five, that I kind of feel like. Between yeah. seven and eight is where that that hundred thousand line is. So I'm gonna say that Batman Devastator is at or just under a hundred thousand. But we're all I think that Captain America six ninety five and Batman Annual two are in the nineties. Star Wars yeah. thirty eight though I I'm looking at the the different variants for that. I'm trying to figure out what the heck is going on Star Wars wise. And the only thing that I can come up with is Star Wars thirty eight was the first. Uh, Kieran Gillen written issue, so I think that there was a bump in people ordering that um, just that to bring on a like new the, the Aaron run. Well, it's not that they didn't like it; it's just that you've got if you think about it, Jason Aaron is you know obviously a very well known writer. He writes superheroes, he writes you know Southern Bastards stuff like that. Kieran Gillen writes in some cases like Wicked and Divine, a very different pocket audience. So you know you're going to have your folks that are already buying. Uh, Star Wars that are going to continue buying Star Wars, right? Your pull list folks, by and large, are going to are, are creatures of habit. Every time you stop a title and relaunch it is an off-road for a subscriber, not an on-road. So you keep going in continuity with a number. You're going to keep those subscribers more or less, more than likely. Not all the time. Um, but bringing on someone like Kieran Gillen, who does have a very uh, good niche following, you increase the opportunity for additional sales not to mention having a new creator is a new on-road. Um, so it is an opportunity for stores to go ahead and try and, and pull more readers in. So 
those are the only things that I can come up with personally. We didn't really adjust our Star Wars order um, by any order of magnitude. I think we maybe went up one or two issues because we had a couple Kieran Gillen folks say, hey, I want to check it out. I don't think it moves from 65000 to 100000 though. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so either. And Kyle, where are you big- at? I am. I'm giving Devastator, so I'm giving the seven. The other thing that this que- the, this question is, we've said, man, uh, we're not a big fan of all these big events on top of big events and all this crap, and it's it's confusing and it's bewildering to yeah. to uh, but, to your fan base. But, the but sales- now DC DC <laughs> has just been like, well, hold on a second, maybe we <laughs> might want to start layering event <laughs> on the top of an event. And, hold uh, my so beer. Well, here yeah. because so these are two different things. Metal mm-hmm. is an event. Doomsday Clock is a maxi series. So it's two completely different things. And what makes these actually yeah, unique duh, compared to oh, Marvel up. is that Marvel Legacy, Secret Wars, um, Secret Empire, all those things affected, you know, 85 to 90% plus of the mainline titles. Yeah. These, the Dark Knights metal stuff, there's been a tie in with the mainline titles here and there. Uh, but it hasn't disrupted the flow, rebooted anything, killed off massive amounts of people, um, brought in new worlds, collided worlds. It's really just existed in the dark multiverse with a flash of that dark multiverse mm-hmm. coming into the main DC universe. And Doomsday Clock is really living in the um, the Watchmen world, per se. Yeah. So it, they're, they're very different from how Marvel has handled their events and their, their maxi-series books. And that's why the reception, at least in our store, has been a lot different than with Marvel. With DC, there's been a buildup of excitement because with the Dark Knight's metal stuff, it's been new characters, it's been new ideas, this new unexplored dark multiverse. That has people excited. When you get to Doomsday Clock, well, yeah, I mean, you're bringing the Watchmen stuff back and you've got people coming into the comic stores that haven't been reading comics for 25 years. That could care less. People that have never even read comics, but they know Watchmen because they've seen it. And now they see Mm -hmm. the poster in the window. So it's to me, it's very different things. The the reaction to subscribers has been less of, if I have to, all right, as opposed to, oh, hell yeah, put that on my list. I'm down with that. That sounds exciting. So I think that we... We kind of have to. Mm-hmm. We're looking yeah. at apples and and pears instead of you know apples and apples. <laughs> is, is there um, anybody who is okay? Doomsday Clock is out. I no longer care about metal. No, no. The folks that jumped off of metal have already jumped off of metal, uh, which was very very few. The the okay. majority of the folks are just adding to the pull list because they want to see this. And at this point, um, the the overlap of Doomsday Clock and metal. Uh, is actually fairly minimal compared mm. to how some events and and whatnot have happened. I think we've only had one book that has had a one week delay with metal, and that's something that the Dio has cracked down on big time at DC. We don't send, we don't publish books late. Um, so I think that the pace that they're moving at with metal and the fact that Doomsday Clock is just starting to ramp up. Don't be surprised if issue three or four of Doomsday Clock all of a sudden things amp up because that's when metal will be tailing off and finished and doomsday clock will be the torchbearer for the the dc you know publishing line now is there anything on doomsday clock that crosses over i haven't seen a checklist or anything or is it just those 10 titles there's no crossovers it okay, is that's what i thought it yep. is just doomsday clock just the max series um it is going to be 4.99 i think the whole way through because the page count is higher for each issue no 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 that that 10th one has to go up to at least eight dollars that's what that's what i'm for. what about omega <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh wait don't count on an omega and, and don't count on a price increase um yeah. that's that's actually yeah. from from didio and jim lee they've said that that's where it's going to be now mm-hmm. if there's a page count increase i i won't be surprised if there's a price jump but i would not expect an arbitrary price increase for the heck of it very cool okay quiz number two um, okay total doomsday clock sales add one and two together of a lenticular non-lenticular and then the breakdown of uh, how many non-lenticular sold and how many lenticular sold 
You couldn't have asked me that before we started recording, so I could have gone over to the computer and actually done the look. <laughs> you don't get an edge. You don't get an edge. You have to. You have to be flying by the seat of your pants like we do. Man, if you and Kyle can vamp for about five minutes, I could go get it. But um, we could do no. that. Kyle, go ahead. <laughs> well, my guess is over three hundred k for the two of them together. Um, as far as breakdown, like I thought they'd be neck and neck, or I actually gave lenticular the edge in my in my in my brain beforehand and I'm still kind of shocked that it's gone uh, the other way. I mean, I'm going to pay that extra dollar every single day. And that was just pre-ordering. Now, when you and I looked at the lenticulars in our hands, we said, there's no way you wouldn't buy this immediately. It looks amazing. So, so, so yeah, I mean, it's gotta be super close. I I say it's less than 60, 40 between them. I don't want to get into like exact nuanced numbers, but I'm putting it over 300 K and pretty much stocked, neck and neck you know we'll say 55 45 or whatever so that's yeah like, that's like 160 to 140 um you're you're saying non-lenticular to lenticular mm-hmm. yeah and don't okay. don't forget the non-lenticular there were um three non-lenticular 499 covers getting rolled in that's true and yeah. you had a lot of people that were chasing all three covers because you had one was a you had the Superman cover, you had the UK cover that couldn't have the Watchman smiley face, you had mm-hmm. the main cover, so... And that was um, independently orderable, too? Yep, every single one of them. Why didn't I get that? I don't know. Why didn't I get that one? <laughs> Good the news, one I, was... I think I know an LCS that might have it, but I'll have to go check with them. That that smiley face, that <laughs> non-smiley face one might be kind of cool to have. I don't think I got that one. Yeah, each of the... Um, uh, crud! Why is it escaping me? The Flash Batman uh, crossover. Oh yeah, yeah. Each of those also had a yeah. The button, thank you, had a UK um, cover as well that was very very low ordered uh, because it couldn't have that Watchman smiley face because it's trademarked by someone in the in in the the UK. Happy okay. times or something like that or good times. Oh yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, Kyle's put his um, his stake in the ground at three hundred thousand. So I'm going to go 350. I'm going right in between 325. <laughs> and you're going to go 325. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking 175 to 150, but yeah. we'll see. And yeah, and I think I, I like that 60-40 split as well. So whatever that math is, I think I think makes a lot of sense. Um, so we'll we'll see how we did. Um, another thing that jumps off is you know the the consistent strength of the Batman title. Even, I mean, brilliant move by DC going bi-monthly or bi-weekly. However, how whatever the proper term is, um, month. Tw- twice monthly, <laughs> twice of them, two of them coming out every month. I mean, we we saw the we saw it start to tail off, and we've seen them dip below a hundred thousand a couple of times on this thing. But it always comes back up, and now we're selling two Batman each month that are over or around a hundred thousand. Um, it continues to be the most consistent, stable property in all of comics. Um, I think creatively that Tom King has found his voice with this, and it is so good. Um, that I, I, with a couple of missteps, I think the Tom King run has been better than the Snyder run already. Oh, so there's take. a lot to chew in on that. Yeah. Um, can can I jump in quick on the numbers first, and then Kyle and I can give our Definitely. our uh, thoughts on the creative part? Okay. So the numbers thing, I think, is a misnomer, and uh, I. Drew, did you listen to John Jackson Miller's interview that he did when he talked about crunching the numbers? Yeah, yeah, okay. that's great. So he nailed it on the head, and most people didn't catch it, and most people don't catch it. And that is that when these numbers are calculated, they're getting calculated at the end of the month. Right. And in most cases, this month is not the case because Batman 35 is above Batman 34, but in most cases, you see DC titles clumped together with the higher issue number directly underneath the lower. So in most cases, you would see... 32 in a higher slot than 33 of Batman. Now, what we've seen month over month is that 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 lower number tends to have a higher sale. 
Sometimes it's 101,000, 102,000. And then the next one is down in the 98s and 99s. And that's because it's not counting in the reorder activity. So every time that Batman ships, inevitably somebody always wants more. Not necessarily in our store. Could be in a different store. So they put in a reorder. What's happening is if that first issue of Batman that hits in the month hits on the first Wednesday of the month, you've got four weeks of reorder activity that can get calculated. And can get tracked, yeah. Exactly. Because if you're only catching, you know, two weeks of reorder activity or one week of reorder activity, it may only be 500 to 1,000 copies. But if you take that over three to four weeks and you run Diamond out of stock, that could be enough to put it over that 100,000 mark again. But you won't catch that in the next month because in the top, you know, 100 or 300 issues, whatever it's going to be, 1,000 books isn't going to make the list. But that thousand could put it over one hundred. So I don't think it's very fair to say that Batman's selling under a hundred thousand. I, I would didn't say, say that. I no, didn't no, say I, that. I'm not saying that you're saying it. Just in general, well, it seems that people are kind of carrying on this thought that Batman yes. dips under a hundred thousand over and over again. And I would say if we were on a monthly cadence instead of a twice monthly cadence, we'd see that number staying at or above hundred thousand. Because Especially we'd have the time for the reorder activity. Especially if it's a first week yep. seller. Yep, exactly. And and that's that's no fault to anyone who's crunching the numbers. That's just a fact of reality. When you get these these twice monthly shippings, you're going to see that. And and right. the same goes for Flash, Wonder Woman, Green Lanterns, Hal Jordan, doesn't matter. Any of those 299 books that are selling twice a month, yeah. you're going to see it that one of them, usually the higher numbered issue is going to have a dip in sales cuz the reorder activity hasn't been able to be factored in and won't be factored in for the next month, which also goes to why at the end of the year, uh, last year Diamond didn't provide it, but in years previous they had provided their top sellers of the year. That goes to show exactly why reorders count over the long term and especially in the trade market, you're going to get some numbers that you don't even see because they sneak in just under that final number every month but you add it up over 12 months and it can be a significant sales number you know that is that's a that's a great point and and i don't think it gets touched on very often it would be interesting if we um mentioned to our friend john who crunches the numbers and does all the math uh each and every month if he could add to his spreadsheet tracking uh week week of release maybe to that that would show well, this th- this one may have dipped a little bit, but it's a fifth week comic or a fourth week comic, and so its its reorder activity might add ten percent. Yep, and 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 that could explain some fluctuations and 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 help with uh, analyzing some of those numbers. Well, I have to mention that to him. Yeah, and I'll, I'll take it a step deeper without going too far off the the tangent here on a tangent here is when it comes to Marvel and DC. Um, James and I have been tracking this over the past probably four to five months is when we noticed it, and we've really been tracking over the last two to three months. Um, When Marvel books are hitting the shelf, so we get our books shipped on Tuesday, and when the books arrive to us, if they're damaged or they're not here, which very rarely happens but does, we always call our diamond rep and say, hey, we're missing these or these are damaged, and they'll order replacements. Well, more and more and more frequently with Marvel books, those replacements aren't there. With DC, every once in a while we'll see that happen. And what's happening is they'll set their print run, whichever publishing company. doesn't have to be Marvel or DC. We just get more of those books, so we see that more often with them. Um, they'll set their print run, and that's set through the FOC, which we'll talk about later on here in this episode. Um, once it's set... That number is reported to Diamond. There are 115,000 copies of Batman that are being printed. 108,000 of those are allocated for, you know, the stores. So that's at least 7,000 copies. Between FOC and the day that it ships, theoretically, someone could go in and order 7,000 copies, leaving zero damage replacements. That happened with White Knight 3. By the time we got our books... All of our White Knight 3s were damaged, and we were only able to get about 40% of them covered. We literally took Diamond out of stock. The other 60% of our uh, order had to go to back order. Well, with DC, that happens probably in about 10% of their titles, which is about par for the course with most major publishers, IDW, Image, Dark Horse, whatever. With Marvel, 
we've been tracking it. And by Monday, we're looking at what's on our invoice, and we're seeing 60 to 70% of those books already being out of stock at, at Diamond. So it's really, it's really weird when you start talking about numbers where Marvel's numbers are capped. Their reorder activity is going to back order on a lot of these things, whereas with DC, some of them have longer legs. So that's another deeper numbers discussion, but just something for people that don't get to see the inside to think about, um, and which is why we continue to advocate for if you want a book, please, please, please pre-order it. Or um, you guys are a great case of this. Every once in a while, something will catch your eye a week and a half, two weeks out from when it's going to hit the streets, and you'll say, hey, can you order this? And I'm able to go in and add it and grab it before it's it's out of stock before it even hits the shelf which is awesome which we love and uh what what about creatively um so am i out to lunch on the creative uh aspect of tim of tom king's take on batman and and, and some of the stories that he's he's written so far in the 35 issues that he's that he's helmed go ahead kyle no, I mean, I, I've i enjoying this stuff, and I think he's hit a really cool niche with the, the, the Catwoman thing and everything and the way he's writing, and uh, we are falling into something where uh, I think it's a very comfortable writing. He's doing good things. I feel like he really has a grasp on Batman, and it's, it's nothing too off the wall. But, man, the highs with Snyder are just so high that I, I don't agree. Okay. I mean, but... With, you know, uh, Death in the Family, with Court of Owls, even with Mr. Bloom, I, I felt that was a, a super strong storyline as well. That um, I, I just, you know, King's got this a very even, and if you're looking at the bar graph of what he's doing, it's kind of, it's, it's still tapering up, I think. Um, but with Snyder, man, there's just quintessential things that I think are, are home absolute home runs. And you don't think King's hit a home run yet? No, I, I really don't. There's nothing that I, I look at it and say, that's something that only Tom King could write. That's something that uh, is unique. Because I'm seeing good storylines. I'm not seeing great. Okay. And I, I might be some recency bias. It's been a while since I've, I've read a, a Scott Snyder Batman book. So... Mm-hmm. And the last one I think was like a forty-two part uh, story arc, so that one was a little <laughs> longer too. <laughs> yeah, I guess for me, um, I think it's hit and miss with Tom, and it was the same for me with Scott. I, I definitely loved the first two arcs that Scott did. I loved the Bloom arc. I absolutely detested the Mechbat personally. I'm not saying yeah, mm-hmm. it was poorly written. I just didn't yeah. like it. Um, so there was a lot of ups and downs with Scott. With Tom's work, um, there's ups and there's downs with that as well. Uh, I don't know as if there's anything that... Um, you know, it's really hard when you say only Scott Snyder could have written The Court of Owls because yeah. he wrote it. Could somebody else have written it? Probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess... the I think it's, it's in execution. And I would say that through the first 30-some issues of... Batman, I think Tom is every bit Scott's equal. And I think it's unfair to judge one against the other because what Scott did with the character was to develop a lot more uh, surrounding pieces 